Hi, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to Crisis to Resilience, brought to you by Interac. This is a show produced by Canada 2020 that explores the thinking, trends, ideas, and pressures shaping our collective response to this moment of crisis. The COVID-19 pandemic has firmly placed health at the center of our politics, society, and daily lives. It has also brought vaccine and drug development timelines and processes to the forefront, with manufacturing delays and other disruptions causing concern among Canadians. On today's episode, I speak with Pamela Freilich, the President of Innovative Medicines Canada, about the drug policies and investments that can contribute to a healthier, more resilient Canada. Thank you for joining me, Pamela, and welcome to Crisis to Resilience. Very happy to be here, Jody. Thank you. So to start off, tell us, what is or who is Innovative Medicines Canada? Well, thanks. That's a great opportunity to, to talk about the organization I'm with. Uh, Innovative Medicines Canada, or IMC, I may use that acronym as we're chatting, consists of a membership base of 45 companies. Uh, their objective is to really address discovery, development, manufacture, delivery of the new medicines, vaccines, the diagnostics that we all benefit from over the course of our lives, one way or another. And these are, these companies, some examples would be Pfizer, which we've heard a lot about, uh, Roche, Lilly, et cetera. So these are the, the major, um, uh, companies that are members of IMC. We have smaller companies as well. It's quite a range. Three uh, factoids, perhaps, that might be of interest to listeners. Uh, this industry does contribute over $19 billion annually in economic activity. Uh, we support more than 30,000 high-value jobs, and uh, about 10% of revenues are redirected right into R&D here in Canada. Uh, maybe one last thing I'll just mention, Jody, uh, in, in terms of the breadth of the work they're doing. At any given time in Canada, there are probably about 500 products uh, under development and, and being, uh, being made available to Canadians covering cancers, infectious diseases, vaccines, of course. Uh, many of these are researched and produced here in Canada, but also exported globally. So I'll, I'll stop that. Hopefully that gives listeners a bit of a bit of an idea of who we are. That's fantastic. And how does IMC measure success? What's a good day for the president of IMC? You know, a good day is is when we're working very closely with other stakeholders, all of us uh, aligned. We may have different views or may be tensions at times, but we're trying to create a very balanced environment that really supports uh, policy objectives on the side of government, um, but um, really presents a viable business uh, environment for uh, for the industry itself. And uh, all of our work at the association does go into uh, trying to ensure that those policies are in place. So again, Canadians, patients can benefit from these products I've just mentioned, and the business uh, feels that there's a, a really strong support for the innovation they're trying to bring to this country. I was reading about IMC, and I was really surprised to find out that it was founded in 1914. Is there a story there? <laughs> There is actually, and I, I wish I had a document in front of me right now where I could tell you that the the official name of the organization at the time uh, included the term toilet products. So it, <laughs> we we have evolved over time, but it uh, you know it's really interesting to see the evolution of this this world of of strange products that we all put into our bodies with great hope and great trust that our our health is going to be transformed or saved in some cases. 
uh, that it's going to be safe and efficacious. And the, 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 the stages, I guess, that the organization has gone through uh, in that over 100 years of history that you know, it has really been, been quite, uh, quite dramatic and quite interesting, but I think consistent with values here in Canada. Well, we're certainly at an interesting point uh, for the pharmaceutical industry in Canada, but uh, across the globe. Uh, talk to us about um, how uh, the pharmaceutical industry in Canada um, is supporting uh, the end of the pandemic and helping us fight COVID. Yeah, that certainly, I mean, that question encompasses almost exclusively, almost exclusively what every one of our member companies is involved with right now. Uh, we're all looking to that emerging light at the end of the, the tunnel. I'm, I'm not sure, uh, and I'm an optimist by nature, but I'm not sure I'd use the word end just yet. We have so many uh, hurdles to uh, to scale, I guess, in this next little while, but we're certainly closer than we were. So uh, the obvious answer to the question is really to point to the things that uh, folks will read in the newspapers, hear on the news, see on social media. It's the production of vaccines. I think in the, the excitement about vaccines lately, we've forgotten the, there is still a huge need for treatments and a lot of work behind the scenes is going on around uh, treatments for vaccine. And of course, diagnostics and um, and uh, trace testing, these sorts of things. Those are the three primary categories, <clears throat> pardon me, that all member com companies have been heavily, heavily invested in. But beyond that, uh, I would want to highlight some of the work that our member companies have, uh, have really taken a lead on uh, in the last year. I guess it has been a year at this point. So beyond what individual companies are doing and, and what globally is happening, uh, we created an IMC COVID-19 fund. So this is uh, funded by the members themselves here in Canada. And uh, initially, of course, wanted to deal with the highest urgencies uh, that were being expressed. So PPEs, we managed to source in those early days uh, through our contacts, about 100,095 masks. They were donated to the public health agency for the best use possible. We then learned that our, our colleagues over at the in the pharmacy profession were a little bit of the second cousin when it came to PPEs and masks and uh, weren't getting the, the quantities they needed. So again, we, we worked with the Canadian Pharmacists Association, found another source, managed to get a couple hundred thousand surgical masks that were donated to the pharmacists. The one that I'm perhaps most proud of, and I think our members are as well, because it's a bit more future looking, and they really wanted to help Canada be better prepared in the future. I think we've all acknowledged that we've, uh, we maybe weren't quite as prepared as we thought we might be or hoped we were, and, and uh, there's work to be done in that going forward. But we uh, provide Provided funding for a research chair in pandemic preparedness. Uh, and this was done uh, under the leadership of Mel Cap as the chair of this uh, search committee, if you will, or competition committee. And you and your listeners probably know Mel, a, a great spokesperson for uh, health issues, as well as a broad range of policy pieces. We had uh, people from the public health agency, other scientists involved in the selection of this chair. And it was ultimately awarded through a very, uh, a very efficient process to Dr. Cernovus Murthy out at UBC and, and uh, BC Children's Hospital. So those are some of the key things that came from this fund that was quickly put together. I'd have to also cite the fact that our companies do employ a lot of health professionals, uh, physicians, nurses, pharmacists, and they um, provided them with paid leave to go and work on the front lines so that the system didn't have to absorb uh, those extra costs. They, uh, they absorbed those themselves. 
And uh, they, most companies have these compassionate access programs for medicines. So we wanted to make sure that if, if anyone lost their benefits coverage in this country because of the pandemic, a loss of job, et cetera, that they would be able to continue to access the medicines. So companies were heavily involved in that. So those are some of the things that immediately unfolded within our member companies as COVID-19 struck. Listeners may be, you know, reading about how the development of vaccines, you know, it was such um, a landmark, tight time frame. How was that possible? It, it, it's, I mean, nothing short of miraculous, I would have to say. And I think we've all uh, experienced that and read a bit about it. And, you know, typically it does take 10 to 15 years to come up with a vaccine, a medicine. It's a very labor intensive. Uh, intensive. I'm not a scientist myself. Uh, and so I've been doing a lot of the learning along the way, as I'm sure you and listeners have. But there are, you know, up to 450 steps in, uh, in quality control. There's billions of dollars. There's multiple years that go into this kind of, of uh, scientific discovery. What was different here is that everyone was focused on the moonshot, if you will. Uh, the collaboration is such that we have really never, uh, we've never seen it before. Um, and that allowed things to happen differently. So the, um, the money, first of all, that was put into the, uh, the, the search for the vaccine the scientific minds that were all focused on the same solution or seeking the same solution, the decades of experience that this industry has and, and researchers outside the industry as well that allowed the, uh, uh, you know, that, that all of that experience, I guess, to come together at one point. There also were a number of processes that typically would be done sequentially to get a product from its discovery phase and its efficacy into Canadians' arms in this case. Uh, as you can imagine, there's a, a great deal of safety and, and security that goes into this kind of a, of a product. And uh, we were able, instead of doing the steps one by one, to do it in parallel. So companies were pro providing their clinical data as soon as it's available to health authorities, instead of waiting until it was a critical mass, if you will, and then sending it on. They have more staff involved. Um, large clinical trials, because so many people uh, were out there uh, uh, having been infected or, or just willing to come forward into clinical trials because of the, the global nature. So there were so many different factors uh, in this particular instance that uh, it just did produce the miracle. I think even Dr. Fauci, we've all heard of and, and listened to him speak, I think he was equally amazed uh, at uh, seeing this come about so quickly. I hope that helps just a couple of, the, of the, the reasons for it, because I know there is some skepticism of it could not possibly be effective or safe, uh, but there were, there were uh, I think I'd say, legitimate reasons that were behind the success of coming up with the first of the vaccines. So is the pharmaceutical industry forever changed? I hope so, but I would expand your question and uh, go beyond the pharmaceutical industry and say governments and other stakeholders, patient groups, uh, researchers outside government or industry. I think it's the nature of collaboration has really demonstrated what we can accomplish when we want to, when we need to. Uh, so I think that there's a, a, a legitimate ground shift in how we can do business. The question for me is whether or not that will continue. Um, yeah, I'll 
leave it at that. There's there's a number of stakeholders that have to make that conscious decision to continue to do things differently. So it's a team sport, I think, is what you're saying. And uh, and you know, for for the for the I guess the the learnings or or to translate this moment from being a one-time uh, scientific miracle into something more sustainable, um, a lot of players need to come together. Yeah, exactly. And I, I do think we have to manage expectations somewhat. Uh, you know, heaven forbid that we go through a global pandemic uh, every year or two. That's uh, one, one wonders how that would be sustainable. And so when you put all of your eggs in one basket, finding the vaccine for COVID-19, uh, I, I'm not convinced that that is fully sustainable, but we have learned a lot about how to do things differently. And the collaborative element, I think, is critical. And uh, there, as I mentioned right off the top, there are always tensions between any industry and government. Uh, there are significant tensions, I believe, when you're dealing with life-saving products and, and uh, government priorities and policy options to be considered. Uh, but I think having the the goodwill and the collaborative it will go a long way to uh, showing us that some of the processes that were put in place for this emergency can, in fact, help in an overall way going forward. Now, something that listeners may have heard about as it was uh, discussed uh, heatedly and frequently uh, in Parliament is the matter of manufacturing capacity in Canada. What is the situation in Canada in terms of our ability to manufacture vaccines? Well, to uh, correct one statement right off the top, and I, I think that unfortunately the, the Prime Minister was misinformed when he, he made that statement initially, we, we do actually have considerable capacity in Canada uh, to produce vaccines. We have major plants uh, both uh, just outside Quebec City and in North York, just in the, the Toronto area. In fact, the uh, um, for one of our companies, uh, Sanofi, their North American Center of Excellence for Analytical and Bioprocess R&D, that's a long name, it's located in North York. And it does play a very active role in developing new vaccines uh, and uh, distributes globally as well. So they manufacture about 60 million doses every year and uh, they export to about, about 60 countries in fact. Uh, the uh, facility in uh, outside Quebec City, which is a, a GlaxoSmithKline facility, GSK, uh, does a tremendous amount of the production of our annual flu vaccine. So we do have capacity. Uh, one of the challenges is that these new vaccines, the mRNA, the messenger RNA vaccines, do use a different technology. So it's not quite as simple as just taking an old building or a new building and saying, now let's make these vaccines. I don't pretend to know all the ins and outs of it, but I, I do know it's very, very complicated. It's also uh, um, expensive to create these facilities. So I believe that Canada could and should be looking at having more domestic capacity. We've done it in the past. We're doing it today. Uh, we can do it in the future. But it's just, it's not as simple as snapping your fingers and making it so. Do you think that should be one of the outcomes of a review um, of our pandemic readiness and response? You know, would you like to see um, more investment in manufacturing capabilities here in Canada? 
I absolutely think that should be on our our uh, list of things to to take a look at. We we didn't have a very effective dew line, if I can use that that old uh, language, uh, as this hit, and so being able to do some of our domestic uh, production, I think, is well worth exploring. At the moment, most vaccine production takes place in Europe, actually, about 80%, I believe. I have to pull up that statistic. Uh, but Canada can do more. We should look at that. The one thing I can tell you is that our, our Canadian CEOs, or, or the Canadian company CEOs, are keen to bring investment to Canada. And we have seen some very significant investments in the last year or two, not nearly as many as I think we could attract. Uh, we need to decide as a, as a country if we truly want to support innovation. I, I think there's a bit of a misbalance there. There's uh, many who do want to support innovation, but um, there needs to be a true commitment to that as we go forward. And in particular, let's look at COVID-19 as an, as an opportunity, uh, this, uh, you know, that silver lining side of every crisis, and how can we use our learnings to accelerate some changes that we all want to have happen regardless. I guess I would be remiss if I didn't point out that uh, there were some announcements uh, by the government, um, $126 million new biomanufacturing facility in Montreal, obviously not going to be ready for the production of COVID-19 vaccines, but um, but uh, that that investment uh, was announced and, and was recently made. And then I guess there was another $173 million uh, for funding for uh, Medicago, a Quebec City-based company. Yes, absolutely. And you're right. And I should have mentioned those as well, because it is, it's only through these sorts of partnerships and everyone shipping in that, that these sorts of things will, will hopefully come to be at some point. And Medicago is one of our Canadian success stories. They had identified uh, their vaccine candidate within, I think, 20 days of receiving the, um, the, um, the COVID-19 strain itself. And uh, so, uh, yeah, the fact that government stepped in to support them was fantastic. And you mentioned R&D earlier, so I just wanted to, to talk a little bit about that. Um, once again, you know, listeners may read that R&D is declining in Canada as a percentage of revenue, um, but, but you were just stating some very large numbers in terms of R&D investment. Where, where, where's the disconnect there? I would say the disconnect is in definition and we're actively working on a solution and believe one has been found. So what happens generally uh, in, in the things that you'll, that, that you'll read, and this comes from both Health Canada and PMPRB, it refers to an agreement between industry and government from about 30 years ago around the Patented Medicine Prices Review Board and that industry would contribute 10% of their revenue uh, to R&D. At that time, however, it was the, the, the SR and ED, the SHRED uh, tax credit program, that uh, was the only metric that was counted. And that continues to be the only metric that PMPRB looks at. And certainly industry contributions or use, I should say, of that program has declined over years. In the 30 years since that agreement was made, the industry has changed. And so uh, it's down to probably about half of its uh, access of that tax credit program from the, the days when it did hit that, uh, that 10% very clearly. But what's happened in the interim is industry is investing in research in different ways. So many people know about J-Labs down, uh, sorry, the Mars in Toronto. And part of that is a J-Labs, uh, which is uh, millions of dollars being contributed annually to, uh, uh, to research. That would not be counted. The research chairs that are funded by industry across the country, that would not be counted. 
Uh, the research uh, in clinical trials is not counted, uh, on and on. So we uh, asked a third party, uh, this has been three years ago now, to take a look at this. Uh, Ernst Young took that on, and they dealt directly with companies. The association did not have access to this data, and they estimated that 9.97% uh, a little bit more for some companies, less for others, but on average, effectively 10% of revenues were in fact going into R&D. It is the definition of R&D that has changed. So fortunately, we've had great conversations with ICID, with industry, and with StatsCan, agreed on a different uh, tax taxonomy, a uh, different definition, and we're in the process of getting the first reports from uh, this new process of assessing just what uh, the uh, the industry is is contributing, and again, I'll come back to the, the the knowledge I've picked up from all of the CEOs who who they really do want to bring more investment uh, into this country, but they have to compete with other countries who are going to the the global leads of pharmacy uh, to say this is a great project. We really need to bring bring money to to Canada in this case, and so um, it's uh, it's something that's an ongoing passion for them. It has resulted in at least 10% of the revenues uh, from the industry going into R&D, but it, it does conflict with the PMPRB definition, which, as I say, is uniquely uh, shred. So what makes a jurisdiction attractive for investment? I'm sure Canadians are thinking, geez, you know, we're a nice, stable place. We're <laughs> well-educated. Uh, we have great uh, civic institutions. Uh, how come you're not banging our door down? I could add to that. We have a great health system as much as we like to complain about it now and then. It's uh, deemed to be very attractive. We have fantastic researchers and research institutions. We have diverse populations, which are great for clinical trials in, in, in our major cities in particular. So Canada is attractive to our, our, our the pharmaceutical industry, don't get me wrong. But they also need what I, I guess I'd say a, a viable business environment. And that means a number of different things. It means uh, a viable pricing system. It means uh, good access the, to the drugs. So the time to list from the time the drugs are ready to go and they actually get, get to Canadians. We're very slow in Canada to do that. Uh, it means good patent data protection that is comparable to what happens in other parts of the world. So there are a number of pieces that really go to create that, that viable um, business environment that, that adds to the attractiveness of Canada. And patent protection, that's somewhat informed by international agreements uh, in which Canada participates, though, correct? It is, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So uh, I, think, I think it was an element of NAFTA, and I think it's also um, a part of the TPP as well. Yeah, it is. And unfortunately, on a number of fronts, we do come up a little bit short. And I'm not the legal expert to go into the details. It's, as you can imagine, I think you're a lawyer as well, Jody. It's, mm -hmm. it's a fairly complex matter. But uh, there are a number of examples that, uh, that really uh, show where, where Canada uh, comes up a bit short. I would say that's not the, 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 the biggest issue right now. And, you know, the, the biggest issue is the government's work around pricing, which has uh, really been, um, I guess, addressed in, a, in an isolated way and in very extreme way. And so there's a lot of uncertainty for the global industry as to um, the, the reimbursement effectively that they will get for the drugs in Canada. So they're, they're holding back right now. They're not bringing drugs to Canada. They're not launching as many clinical trials. Um, they're not investing in other ways. 
in the way that they they have even the last uh, the last couple of years. But since these there have been new regulations that have been passed, and since those were passed, it's it's just created uh, a true environment of uncertainty. So that's that's one of the pieces that makes it less attractive in Canada for uh, drug companies to bring their products here. Is Canada doing anything um, so unusual, though, that other countries haven't done? You know, people talk about New Zealand and and obviously the way um, prices are set is that they are um, compared to other jurisdictions. Um, So are we are we really deviating down, you know, such a such a unique path here? Yeah, we are. Interestingly, the the uh, I guess process, the approach that PMTRB. I'm not going to keep saying it out loud for listeners. Hopefully, patented medicine prices are review board, but PMTRB uh, is using that approach. Is it's not being used anywhere else in the world. We're an international outlier. It's quite experimental. Uh, there are some who might say, "Isn't that fantastic? We're trying something uh, unique." Uh, but uh, because it's being done. Uh, in a fairly isolated way, uh, in other words, not looking at all the pieces of the ecosystem, the pieces that they're trying to do, so beyond the, the basket of comparator countries, which you make reference to and, and many people hear about, there are three other uh, three new economic factors that are being introduced. There are pharmacoeconomics and HTA, health uh, technology assessments, uh, market size, and then GDP and GDP per capita are all being introduced all at the same time. So it's a little bit like going to a physician with a problem and they're saying, well, I'm not sure what might be best. There are three or four ideas. Let's try this one first and then move to the second. And instead, the physician says, let's just try all three of them at the same time and see how it's, see which one sticks. Uh, y- you generally wouldn't do that. And I, I don't mean to be cavalier about it, but um, there there is that concern that with all of these unique approaches being uh, added at the same time, it, it, it is going to... Uh, create an imbalance, and I keep using that word, in what our various expectations are. So the impact of these, um, this collective of all of these factors is going to reduce revenue, uh, which is what every Canadian wants. <laughs> That's great, cheaper drugs. You know, I get that. Uh, but if your company is, uh, revenue is being reduced by anywhere from Let's see, at the, at the, at the low end, uh, 20, 30%, for some companies up to 80%, uh, you know, no company can withstand that kind of impact. And that's what they're looking at. And it's why that there is significant reticence right now to come to Canada when we're, we're considering these unique approaches. Uh, and uh, you know the story probably of New Zealand when they went to a very extreme uh, cost um, lowering approach. They they were successful in lowering the cost of drugs, but by monitoring um, morbidities and mortalities, they saw a, a huge impact when their citizens could not get access to the, the best drugs available. And so they've changed their approach. They're looking for that different balance. I'm hoping that Canada doesn't have to go to that stage and that we can come up with a more balanced approach before that ever were to happen. Yeah, I think if I can, you know, sort of speak personally, I would like us to um, move more robustly to a system where, you know, an individual's ability to pay doesn't um, uh, impact their ability to access drugs. Um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, uh, healthcare has changed so much. And I know you've held, you know, senior roles at, at really great uh, uh, healthcare organizations in addition to IMC. Um 
you know, so healthcare has changed a lot and we just, you know, we rely on pharmaceuticals uh, so much more than than when we were first, you know, def- uh, creating our single payer system. So so it would be great to see um, see more people be able to um, access medicines and and not be dependent on filling out forms or or going through through processes. Um, but I think I think like a, a lot of Canadians, you know there's a lot of moving parts here. And I think, I think that's the really difficult thing to understand. So, so when we, when we read, you know, about um, discussions around drug pricing and, and other issues uh, related to the industry, um, I think reasonable Canadians understand it's like, okay, well, you know, we understand there needs to be a viable um, business environment. Um, certainty is certainly a part um, of that kind of viable business environment. There has to be a, a degree of um, predictability. Um, but I think, you know, Canadians also don't think maybe that it's working as well as it could. So so, so where where is the middle? Canadians love middle <laughs> ground, right? <laughs> yes, we do. Yeah, you know what? I don't think anyone will disagree with that observation you've just made. Uh, we want Canadians, obviously, to have access to the best possible medicines when they need them, uh, have the choice uh, that they require, etc. Uh, and I, you know, some of the most senior people I've spoken I speak within government and Health Canada. Everyone acknowledges that our system, <clears throat> pardon me, needs some work. Uh, it was built in a fragmented way. And if we were to build a system that would get the most drugs possible in the hands of Canadians as quickly as possible, it would not look the way it does right now. And so I, I would have to say that I've, I'm again, optimist that I am. Uh, government floats, has floated, more than floated. It's in the, the, the last budget, but the, the idea of a Canada drug agency. And we don't really know what exactly that means, but hopefully uh, we believe it will take a look at bringing some of the disparate pieces of the drug system together under one umbrella and look for ways that we can work differently and by that, I mean better. So again, if you think back to some of the comments I made about COVID-19 and how have we been able to bring a vaccine uh, to, to fruition so quickly, and I mentioned about parallel processes, uh, we often talk about you know looking at other countries that maybe are ahead of us in stages. If the FDA in the States and the EMA in Europe have approved a product, do we need to take another six months in Canada to decide that, yes, we approve it as well? I'm not suggesting we forego any safety steps, but can we do it differently? And so I'm, I'm very excited about the idea of the Canada Drug Agency and seeing where that might go. We would love to have some input to it. Uh, you know, I, I, as you just mentioned, I come from a, a, you know the health industry. I have a few years now with IMC. I'm very proud, by the way, to, to be here and learn so much about what is such an important player and, and stakeholder in our health system, but I barely scratch the surface in, in truly understanding all the ins and outs of, of how it works. But I do know that uh, from all the readings I've done, that there are some tremendously positive examples 
of industry-government collaborations that have, have really benefited patients. Uh, there's a, the, uh, the Belgian Pact over in Belgium. The UK and, and the industry work very closely together. Scotland has done some great work on rare disease strategies that we're struggling with here in Canada, Spain, Italy. Uh, we're lucky as a global industry. We have access to that information quite easily, and we are keen to share that with governments and see how Canada can benefit. It won't be a cut and paste exercise, but I know that we have learnings to share that will really help us out going forward. I give Pamela a magic wand and she can wave it. And her goal is to help uh, Canada be more resilient. And just to unpack that word, because we say it a lot, and we sometimes don't necessarily uh, um, ascribe specific meanings to it. And really, resilience, it's about the ability to recover, but it's also about the ability to absorb shocks as they come. So from the perch of the pharmaceutical industry, how would you wave that magic wand? What would you love to see that you think could contribute to Canada being a more resilient uh, nation? Oh, how much time do we have? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, two things jump to mind. One is a bit more specific to this industry and one is broader. If you'll give me the, the, the luxury to just briefly speak to those two. In terms of the industry uh, and contributing to that resilience, I think Canada, Canadians, patients will benefit from a tripartite approach to solving this, this conundrum of access to the best medicines possible. Patients, governments, industry, we have to be at a table in a meaningful way and work out a balanced option that respects the, the sustainability needs of the, the system, uh, the policy uh, desires of of government, but um, also respects that patients need these products and, frankly, industry wants them to have those products. I'm sure we can do that. So that hasn't happened. There's not a, a robust relationship in that way, and I believe there needs to be, and we will all benefit from it. So that's the one. The second one, broadly speaking, is let's use COVID-19 as an accelerant to the changes in the health system that we, we know already need to be made. Anyone who's looking at health has read Andre Picard, you've read the book by Daniel Martin. I mean, these are not new ideas, they're out there. We need a, a leadership of leaders to, to be using health teams, to be keeping people in their homes as long as possible, uh, expanding scopes of practice, uh, evolving our clinical guidelines using artificial intelligence, uh, reorganize our HR. Did you know that we only have 304 geriatricians and 471 rheumatologists in Canada? Many of them are near retirement. That's only 11 and almost 12 geriatricians per 100,000 Canadians that are over 75. We've got almost 50 pediatricians per 100,000 Canadians, 15 and under. And consolidate health information, that's another one. So these are things that are not rocket science to you or to me, I'm sure. But can we not use COVID-19 as an opportunity to uh, prioritize and create some um, really fast forward movement on some of these issues that, um, that will really create the resilience that you're asking about? Pamela Freilich, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your insights with us. I appreciate it. It's been great to chat with you, Jody. Thank you for the opportunity. 